Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. G'day and welcome to Ausbiz. This is the call 10 stocks picked by you. Two experts, one hour. It is Wednesday, the 9th of December. I'm Andrew Gagan. Great to have your company. All right, let's uh, introduce our guests on today's show. And joining me in the studio, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Michael, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's good to be in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, Via Skype, Andrew Page, the straw man himself. Andrew, g'day, how are you going? I'm very good, Andrew. Yes, yeah, sorry, I couldn't be in the studio today with you guys. Not at all. All right, Andrew, how are you seeing the market at the moment? It's uh, FOMO is back, isn't it? Are we going to have that Santa rally? I don't know. I actually think it's pretty rough out there. If you're sort of focusing on sort of the growthy end of the market, it's, uh, you know, we've, we've seen a bit of a, a, a bounce today, but, you know, overall, it hasn't been a great couple of months. So, Swings and roundabouts, that's how it goes. You've got to roll with the punches, but um, hopefully hopefully we see a, a bit more of a sustained and significant recovery in some of these stocks soon. Yeah, look, there's, uh, Michael, there's been a lot of uh, two-way price action in recent times, people trading on that volatility. Are you expecting that to continue? Because, I mean, we have had a little more positive news, certainly as far as the Omicron variant is concerned. Yeah. It's looking as though perhaps not as bad as initially thought. That's true, uh, but I think this week we'll have some more inflation data out of the US and, and that could again set the market on a negative course um, if, if that's very, very strong, that number. So there's always things that can set the market off either way. Last week it was Omicron, this week could well be inflation. Um, but we do have a, a lot of data coming out really in the next sort of week or so until most central banks in the world go underground. Mm. Um, so look, fingers crossed we can see a little bit of a, a recovery, a stabilisation as we're seeing, and then that will hopefully set us up for the, the Christmas rally. But look, I, I haven't, I'm not too concerned either way. Try and look through the noise and, and try and take a medium longer term view. And, and many of these businesses that pull back a long way might well be an opportunity to, to add to some quality names. Yep. All right. Andrew, are you more, more concerned about COVID or inflation at this point? Uh, a little bit of both, but like Michael, I mean, like, you've got to look through these things. There's always going to be something. I mean, how long have we all been doing this? There has never been a period where we've said, you know what, everything's really certain and there's nothing to worry about. Like it's it's normal. And when these things pass, there'll be something else to occupy us and, and something else to worry us. So um, they're both significant factors, um, inflation and the impact that that could have on interest rates and, you know, um, COVID, very serious. So I don't yep. want to downplay that for a second. But I think when you're an investor and you're making investments over multi-year periods, you've just, this is the backdrop of reality that we invest through. So you, you if, if you're going to wait for some clear air, you'll be waiting for a long, long time. You, you have to invest in spite of all of this stuff. Yeah. If you're an investor and you're not worried, you probably should be, in other words. All right. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's get to our stock of the day. And that is a Woodside Petroleum. Uh, it's committing to invest $5 billion in new energy products by 2030 as it aims to cut emissions and tap into cleaner sources of fuel. And yesterday, the company's saying it will expand its hydrogen portfolio and solar projects 
in the US. This comes after the company and uh, BHP gave the final go-ahead to their $12 billion LNG project last month. So what do our experts think? Michael, Woodside should probably be dropping the petroleum from the name, shouldn't they? I guess they have it in some quarters. But uh, how are you seeing this, um, this outlook from the company? I think it's a bit of semantics, really. They're obviously still very much a LNG uh, energy-based company. Um, the merger with BHP, I think, is a blessing for this company. Um, essentially, Woodside had some very high quality assets with the cost of production in the lower quartile globally. However, the, the life of those assets was quite short and that's what was really concerning the market there for some time. So although they were conservative, their growth profile looked pretty, pretty average. Um, the merger with the petroleum division of BHP um, certainly gives them a bit more geographical uh, diversification. It also enhances their potential earnings power going forward. So there is a lot to like about that merger for Woodside shareholders, of which I'm not one and neither are clients of ours. Um, they're big, they made a decision a few weeks back to go ahead and, and maintain their full 100% ownership of the Sculbra uh, project. That's an okay project. The, the internal rates of return are estimated at about 14%. So it's not a huge returner, but it does give them longer production life. And that's something that the market, I think, does not mind. Um, however, look, on an internal rate of return, it doesn't leave a lot of margin for when things do take a bit of a hiccup. So. Look, for mine, I th look, it's a, a decent quality exposure to the energy space. Um, we have a little bit of exposure through Oil Search and Santos, and now that merger's going through mm. um, because we prefer the growth trajectory of those companies. Um, we still probably do prefer those two opportunities, or, or now um, Santos, but we have been sort of reducing those positions as well now that the oil price has recovered sort of over the last 12 months or so. So we're pretty neutral on the oil price from here. You would think that if the market and the global economy continue to roar ahead, energy should do well. But ultimately, um, OPEC still has a lot to say with these sorts of things, as does the shale oil producers in the US and what Biden does there with his spare reserves. So if it was in your portfolio, would you be holding it? Oh, look, I am a seller of Woodside, right. okay. only because I prefer others, and it'll be a bit wrong of me to say um, it's a buy or a hold for that reason. You could yep. do worse, but it is a safer option and exposure to the energy space. All right, Andrew, um, it's foray into renewables. Do you find that attractive? No, not at all. I don't find anything attractive about this business. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, let's let's you know let's put opinion aside and let's just talk about facts. You know, the revenues have dropped by a third in the last decade. Shares have only been heading down since two thousand and eight. Dividends have gone nowhere for as long as I can remember. And even with that, that you, you're getting a five percent yield. It's got really volatile earnings. The return on capital, the return on equity, whatever profitability metric you want to do, it's awful. It's sort of around the mid single digit kind of range. There's zero pricing power, massively capital intensive, and it's bad for the environment. You know, it's kind of like, if you're at least gonna rape and pillage our natural environment, at least make some money for shareholders while you're doing it. They, they haven't done that. So hope springs eternal. Um, maybe, maybe the future will be different, but I just find that, you know, this idea that as an investor, you must have exposure to this sector. And that it's a, I would ask why, why? <laughs> and this is the biggest, uh, sort of player in its space in, in our market. And that's what it's done with all of the advantages that it, that it has. And people talk about how wonderfully high quality the assets are. I was like, show me the money. It's it's not there. And so, you know, I kind of feel as though, I'm really glad Michael said pass because I was really prepared to put the boot into this. <laughs> and I think I, 
I think I've done that, but I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm really open to having my mind changed here. But that, those facts are not, you know, the, the company's not covering itself in, in glory here. And I, I've just got to wonder, why is the future going to be so very different from the past when we're going into this very um, dramatic structural shift for the global energy mix? And yeah, LNG will play an important part in the transition. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's not as if there are strong tailwinds behind this sector. And so they can greenwash it if they want and they can do other kinds of things. But this is... It's a very low returning uh, company that has delivered really sub uh, par inadequate returns for shareholders for as long as I can remember. Hard pass. All right. Our big avoid. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Let's uh, get into our, uh, our 10 stocks then uh, as picked by you. The first one coming to us from Sarah. It is to us and... Um, now, this uh, came about, uh, was listed uh, just over a year ago, a year and a half ago, following the merger between TPG Australia and Vodafone Hutchinson. Uh, and in fact, it's just, um, I think on Monday, in fact, it announced its uh, Singaporean subsidiary TPG successful in bidding for the, uh, the latest uh, Spectrum there, um, which excited investors. Andrew, does it excite you? I've got to admit, I don't know much about the Singaporean telecommunication market um, and haven't followed it since the merger. David Teo's involved. That's a that's a massive tick. Um, having a quick look at some of their numbers. So they did about 32 million in revenue for the 12 months through to the end of July. And in just the first quarter alone, they did 12.2. So if you sort of like pro rider that out, that's a 50% increase. Uh, on top of that, they now won a bunch of 5G spectrum. It looks as though the uh, the customer numbers have been increasing very rapidly. Uh, so I, you know, I'm I'm not one to ever go against uh, Dave Teo. He's a very very smart operator. Um, it is on 20 times sales when you convert what they've done back to Australian dollars, which is up there. Uh, the argument is no doubt that uh, as as they expand and they sort of unlock a bit of this operating leverage from these these assets as they bring more and more people onto the network. But that's really that's really the the thing is investors have to focus on how successful are they going to be in capturing more and more market share and getting more and more value out of the assets that that they've got. So I think it's an interesting one, but I don't know well enough to 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 condone it as a as a buy. All right, so that's what I take that as a possible hold, but you're not buying it at least. I'm going to give you a lot of sales, Andrew. I'll warn you right now. It's, oh, I think okay. as, as a, <laughs> yeah, I think as an investor, I don't make any apologies for it. There's 2,000 stocks out there. Your job yeah. is to say no far more often than it is to say yes. And and something that looks interesting is not something that you invest significant sums of money on without doing serious amounts of due diligence. So yeah. that's that's just how it's going to be for me. So, I'm sorry. Sounds as though you're clearing the decks before Christmas. But uh, anyway, no, no, I'm, abs no yeah. I'm absolutely not. I, I just think you just have to be. You have to you have to play favourites in this game, and there's going to be a lot of perfectly decent companies that you pass on, not because they're awful companies, but because they're not the best opportunities that are available out there. And I, I'd probably put TPG in, in, in that category. Perfectly decent company, probably will do very well. I I just prefer other things. Fair enough. Okay, Michael, were you impressed at all? Oh, look, I'm definitely impressed with the way it's performed and, and the way it's gone out on its own as an independent company. You often see this that the company that's been divested actually outperforms the parent company significantly and that's been the case in this instance with TPG. Um, I don't know much about the Singapore telco market but I, I assume they're going through a similar sort of transition as we will be in Australia with the 5G network being rolled out. So the fact that they've managed to access 
some of this spectrum, um, definitely makes them a player in that market. They've now got to roll out the spectrum, deliver on that without any blowouts, and then they've got to go out and, and get the platform, get people onto the, the network. Um, so it's not a foregone conclusion that just because they've got the spectrum, they'll succeed. Um, given the big run-up in the share price, um, and I think the long-term competitive nature of the telco industry, uh, I think it's a sell. So that's, uh, that's my go there. All right, uh, that's a big pass again. Uh, that's on 2S. All right, to our second stock, Aurelia Metals, ticket code AMI. And uh, this is a mining exploration company. It's got uh, its holdings in New South Wales. Recently announced that it had acquired Darg's gold mine. Uh, and it's uh, exploration tenements in New South Wales. And Michael, it has a goal of becoming a mid-cap gold producer. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's been a good space to be in over the last you know, five, 10 years, if you've been able to pull it off. There are a number of key names out there, Evolution Mining, Northern Star, Saracen, before it was merged or acquired. And they've all been good success stories in the space. Um, but it doesn't guarantee success just because you're, you're looking to expand and you've got exploration projects in the pipeline. This particular company um, essentially has gold and copper reserves. Um, they obviously, for that reason, then rely on the price of copper and gold, both of which have been pretty good in, in recent times, but won't necessarily always be very strong. So you need to factor that in, in your assessment. Um, it's obviously on the higher end of the risk curve, this particular investment, because they do have so much relying on their exploration going forward. They've got two key projects. The main one, I think, is in in New South Wales. Um, but if you look at the production numbers, the last quarter production number was down, you know, 30, 35%. Um, the average price that they were receiving, or, or sorry, the average cost of production was increasing as well. So they're not metrics you wanna see for a company looking to emerge as a, a serious mid cap player. Um, so for that reason, I think it's too high risk. The momentum in their Production numbers um, and the momentum in their all-in sustaining costs are negative. So for that reason, I'll have a, a sell on this one too. All right. Gee, you guys are being negative today. Um, so Andrew, uh, yeah, gold and copper, as Michael said there, though he highlights that, that high-risk nature to the company. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't like the space in general. Um, but, you know, credit where it's due. I mean, th these guys are profitable. You know, they, they pay a dividend. Um, the gold production since 2016, so over the last five years, has increased threefold. Um, so they've, they've done very well in that regard. The nature of the business, though, is a tough one because when you do find something, you've got to spend a lot of money getting it out of the ground. You have no idea what the price is going to be when you do. And the day that you start digging that stuff out of the ground, that, it, that mine just gets a little bit worth less and less and less as, as you extract it. And then you've got to take that cash flow and reinvest it again. So as Michael pointed out, they've got this exploration program underway maybe they'll find something that's fantastic uh, maybe they won't uh, and maybe when they do if they do the price of gold will be really high or maybe it won't uh, so you know this, this is it, these are very very hard things to sort of to speak on with any great authority so I think if you are investing in this space I know the people that do do it well they have a very strong geological sort of background and focus and it's very much knowing and trusting the people at the helm here as very sound savvy operators um, and i don't know that level of detail with this company so you know ostensibly it looks really cheap it's a p of seven uh, and a business that as i say has done quite well but bear in mind too that although um although the business has has done reasonably well it doesn't always translate one for one to shareholders because they need to they need to raise a lot of capital and so the share count has increased 50 percent 
in the last three years. So there's a lot of sort of dilution along the way, or at least you're expected to put a lot more capital in. So for all of those reasons, it just it goes in the too hard basket for me. So I wish them well, but it's not for me. All right. Andrew, are you, um, are you avoiding gold um, in general at the moment? Um, of course, there is the copper side of it too, and we know the growth there as far as uh, the EV transition, but um, gold, not interested? No. <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's, I, feel as though it's, I feel as though it's beholden to the other side to sort of give the argument for gold. We, you, you can, we've got decades, centuries, thousands of years of history for this particular commodity. And most of the stuff we dig up, we just polish up and put back underground again. So it doesn't really serve much of an industrial use. It doesn't serve much of a commercial use. It's a bit in jewelry, there's a bit in dentistry and some satellites and circuitry sort of use it. But for the most part, it's really just sort of this thing that we think has value for largely societal and historical kind of reasons. It's a very dirty industry. It's a very competitive price taking capital intensive industry. I think that when you look at a lot of the greatest investors in the world, they've done perfectly well and built wonderful track records without ever having exposure to gold. So if it was a choice between that and emu farms, I'm all in gold. But there's there's a lot more. There's there's a lot of other industries out there that have far far better economics, far far better competitive advantages. And and for yep. me, it's just again be fussy, right? Like give me a reason to want to go into gold, and I just don't see it. Yeah, fair enough. Others, others will disagree. All right. Actually, Michael, I should ask you the same question. So is, it, is gold a general no for you? Look, we have similar sentiments to Andrew. We, we view it more of a, a trading area. Yeah. I mean, we don't just sit in these companies and hold them year after year. Um, it's for those clients who are looking for a bit of excitement in their life. Sometimes when the gold price gets on a bit of a, a run, for whatever reason, you, you see these gold producers pick up often 30, 40, 50% in a very short space of time. Um, so in terms of the, the investment uh, thesis behind gold, I, I struggle to come up with one. Um, but there are some good gold producers on the Australian market who have very low cost of production, who have got a good track record of producing uh, and producing at low costs and, and improving grades over time, paying good dividends. And I think they're the ones you want to stick to because they tend to be the ones that are rewarded most handsomely if gold does turn in your favour. But as a, as a general rule, it's not our, our favourite part of the market by any means, more of a, a trading hot money type area. All right, I think you both made that clear. All right, so we're not doing very well in terms of uh, buying into uh, shares directly. So let's turn to an ETF, shall we? The Vanek Global Listed Private Equity ETF. This one coming to us from Nigel. And uh, he's saying in particular, he's interested in whether this should be considered as uncorrelated to traditional equities and where it may fit into your portfolio. Andrew, your thoughts? Yeah, so, okay, um, private equity uh, companies uh, can be really interesting. They can also be very terrible, that, that should be said. But this is 50 of the largest, most liquid ones around the world. So think of things like Blackstone, KKR, Carlyle Group would be some familiar names. Um, they often pop up in our, in our uh, headlines when they're taking over uh, ASX-listed companies. Um, and they've had a very good run of late. So I feel as though if, if you want to get exposure to private equity, an ETF is probably a pretty good way to do it because one, you get that diversification and two, it's much more liquid. So it's much easier to get in and out of if, if you need to do that. But again, it's, it's um, again, I'd ask the, I, this idea of, it sounds very smart and people will sort of say, hey, we, you should have a bunch of uncorrelated assets in, in your portfolio uh, because when one zigs, the other one zags and that, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. 
But I think in trying to engineer smoothness, we often do ourselves a bit of a disservice in, in, in terms of our total return. So the question is, do you want a really high average long-term return with a bunch of volatility, or do you want a much lower long-term average return uh, with no volatility? There's no free lunch in investing, right? So I think any time that you try, it's, it's like the same with uh, hedging and then these other kinds of things, there's usually a cost involved. So I would say, in terms of Nigel's question, if you really like these entities, and there's quite a few of them in there, and I think about 50% is concentrated amongst the top 10 or so, and they do have good track records and you want exposure to them, then by all means, I think it's a really good vehicle to do so. But don't do it just for the sake of finding an uncorrelated investment. It would be my would be my take on that. Academics will disagree with me. Okay, so you're avoiding it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, um, Michael. How about you? Uh, an ETF, as Andrew said, they're fifty of the largest private equity firms. Yep. Look, I'm not sure if it's uncorrelated. If you look back over the last you know, decade or, or two decades. Um, the tech sector has done incredibly well. The multiples paid on some of these businesses has gone through the roof and private equity companies have benefited from that broader market thematic. Um, the question is going forward five, 10 years, will those same conditions be replicated? And I think we're getting less and less likely to be seeing those sorts of multiples continue forever, particularly, or that multiple expansion continue forever in the tech mm -hmm. space. So it's gonna be hard for these private equity companies to replicate the last decade that they've had. Um, do keep in mind when you're investing in these private equity companies, you're investing in the business, not their actual funds. So you can have a private equity company that runs the funds really well and delivers some very good results across the different vintages um, of their private equity funds, but doesn't necessarily mean the underlying business itself is gonna do as well. So if you're looking for private equity exposure, which can be completely uncorrelated to the market, maybe look around at some of the, the different private equity options that are out there, whether it be unlisted or there's a couple of listed, but it's probably more appropriate in the unlisted space for an actual pure private equity exposure. Because do keep in mind, although you're investing in something that is linked to private equity, it's not the same as investing in a pure private equity transactions. Um, these companies are very, very big. They're very, very successful over a long period of time. So I don't think you're gonna do horrendously badly by investing in this. Um, I think it's a very smart marketing ploy um, by the ETF provider to, to provide awareness and to give people access to this part of the market. Um, but ultimately, I, I don't think it's the same as pure private equity. So for that reason, it's, look, it's not going to do bad. I think if you held it, you'll probably achieve you know, 10 15% per annum over the long term, which is more or less around what you'll get by having the, the market ETF. So just do keep that in mind. Um, it's not, I guess I said, not the worst thing in the world. I'm going to give it a, a hold for that reason, for people who want that broad exposure to a, a growing sector of the market. It's a hold. I'm taking yeah, it because I'll that's the best we've got so far. <laughs> All right. Okay. Michael. Yes. Do you like whiskey? I love whiskey in, in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, because that brings us to our next stock, United Malt Group. This one coming to us from Liz. Uh, it is the world's fourth largest supplier of roasted malt. Of course, it's critical as far as whiskey is concerned. Um, I'll also take a look that single malt whiskey is set to triple in price next year. That's the forecast, given the where we're seeing some of those ag prices going, supply chain issues. How are you looking at this stock? This is another um, divestment business that's gone on to do quite well since it was divested from Grain Corp a few years back. So effectively, they provide 
Um, a lot of the ingredients used in, in whiskey and, and beer, they've got, I think, 13 different processing centers around the world, whether that be in Australia, Canada, the US, um, as well as various places into Europe. Um, they were doing quite well leading into COVID, but COVID has been a bit of a headwind for them. Uh, the volumes have come down a little bit. The revenue has been under a little bit of pressure. So it's, it's one of those industries and one of those businesses where there's a lot of variables going on. There's obviously the, the currency at play. There's also the cost of the various inputs um, and there's also the processing costs involved. So it's something to be careful of in a rising cost environment and the rising inflation environment because a lot of the inputs that go into producing this stuff might go up in price, putting pressure on margins and revenue. So we've seen that in the last 12 months, revenue is down about 5%, um, EBITDA is down about 20% and you can see the, the impacts of having a negative margin effect there. So you wanna be careful. Look, the gearing is pretty under control for this business. The, the balance sheet looks reasonable, I suppose, in that it's not over-leveraged, um, but I just don't find it to be the most exciting company on the market. Again, if you're looking for an agriculture-related company, this is probably one that is worth looking at, but when you're building a portfolio of 20 or 30 stocks, this wouldn't come close to making that list for me, so I'm gonna give it a, a sell. All right. Andrew, your thoughts? Um I'm not going to give you any love here, sorry. Um, yeah, same, I echo Michael's sentiment there. Look, there are, there are businesses that operate in very important uh, parts of, of our economy and they provide very um, uh, important inputs and all of this kind of stuff. But again, the economics are not that attractive. This thing runs on EBIT margins of about 5%, razor, razor thin margins. As Michael said, they're subject to FX rates, they're subject to fluctuations in the price of barley, uh, the demand from their customers, really tough business. Um, doesn't mean you can't do well, doesn't mean that it won't be around for, for decades to come, I'm, I'm sure it will. People are gonna keep drinking whiskey, but I mean, we could have said the same when electricity was invented and commercialized or when airlines or when steam engines or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are things that can be very big and important in the world but probably don't do you any favors as an investor. So even if you go back and look at their pro forma earnings before they were a, a separate entity, this thing was kind of growing around the mid single digit rate. So it's very low growth, very, very low margin. And for all of that, from what I can work out, it's, tra it's, it's trading on a trailing price to earnings multiple of 36. Now, they have made some pretty big investments recently, which they're anticipating to be a bit of a step change in earnings in FY23, so in a couple of years' time. Maybe that comes through, but it seems to me that's in the price and then some. So, uh, pass. Sell. Pass. A sell. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. That, that is United Malt Group, a sell from both. All right, let's go to education. Cluey, this one coming to us from James. Um, it is an Australian education tech company. Uh, supporting learning um, the growth of students by bringing together the educators uh, the, with technology and uh, it's a sort of a targeted learning service. Uh, Andrew, do you, uh, how do you, how are you seeing this sector? Because more broadly it's been under pressure obviously, but then we saw some changes during COVID with online learning. How do you see this one? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a very interesting space. I think globally, uh, online education and training is, is is only going to increase. I mean, um, it's it's a, it's a fascinating area. Um, clearly, you've got to give them credit. They they only uh, founded in two thousand and sixteen, 
And so in five years to go from literally zero to a business that's now worth $130 million and what is it, generating something like $16 million or so uh, each year, it's, it's, it's very, it's very uh, noteworthy. So that's, that's great. What's been interesting, though, is that there's, there's what you manage to sort of uh, make in revenue and what you actually manage to make in profit. And this is one of those businesses that even though the top line has grown very rapidly, the, the losses uh, have, have widened. So the more money that they, the more that they're selling, the more that they're losing. And the reason that that's happening is not for necessarily nefarious or bad reasons, but they're just investing for growth, which are, which is really unavoidable when you're sort of out there trying to trying to sort of capture the land grab. So the question is whether or not this is is actually something that can um, pivot and actually start generating good margins of of the sales that it's making. I think the the jury is out on that. It is a hyper hyper competitive uh, space. A lot of people are getting into this. I think that the the founders seem to know what they're doing. Um, but look, it's it's cash flow negative. They recently bought Code Camp. I don't know if any of your guys' kids have been to that. It's a pretty cool little business. But again, it's not it's not very scalable uh, as well. It's not it's not a software based business, which I thought was a bit of an odd move. And I think they tried to do that to again to sort of engineer some smoothness because as a tutoring company, there's a bit of lumpiness in in terms of when school holidays are and the rest of it. So as I said before, I don't think engineering smoothness is always the best sort of thing long term. So you, I know, you roll all of that together and you've got something that's now trading on eight times sales. I just think it's it, it's interesting, but it's it's too expensive given, given the unknown. So for that reason, I'm sorry, it's a pass as well. Okay, Michael, so Andrew there saying has been impressive growth, but obviously it's uh, sort of reinvesting uh, for that growth losses widening but too mm -hmm. expensive your thoughts we think it's a, a great space at the moment that online um, education and tech industry we think has a lot of legs long term it's just a matter of finding the best businesses within that space we've had a lot of sales today i'll, I'll give you a couple that we are buying or we have held for a while idp education um, as well as ready tech so not the same as cluey but a similar type of company and similar type of, of metrics, I suppose, um, or, or economics um, in the long run, well, at least Cluey's hoping for that. But this business, um, all the headline numbers look great, but it is growing off a small base. So you've got to be wary of that. It's, it's unlikely that these sorts of growth rates will be maintained. You've also got to look at the contribution to revenue coming from acquisitions relative to what they're doing organically. And I haven't had time to really get into the, the nitty gritty um, of that. But looking at new students, the number of sessions being conducted, all those things look very, very good. But I think at some point you have to be conscious and cautious of the fact that they are looking to grow via acquisition a lot. And that could mean a lot more capital raisings down the track. They're in the middle of one at the moment, uh, a lot of dilution down the track and, and potentially um, those acquisitions don't go entirely to the plan and then end up costing the business down the track. So. It's a bit too speculative at this point in time. They seem to be on a good thing. Commend the founders, but too early stage for me. So it's a sell. A sell. All right, but you did give us a couple. What, that was ReadyTech and IDP. Uh, IDP education, yeah. Yep, okay. All right, we're at the halfway mark. So let's see how we're going. Uh, Summarise those five stocks. We began with the stock of the day. That was uh, Woodside. Uh, Michael, they're saying that merger with the BHP, a blessing. However, still doesn't 
cut it as far as he's concerned. It's a sell. Andrew, I think even more critical there, just doesn't see anything attractive about this <laughs> whatsoever, uh, particularly given revenues down about a third in the past decade. So that's a big avoid from Andrew. Uh, to our first stock, that was uh, Tuus. Um, Andrew's saying impressive revenue growth, but that's about it. No, not a lot known about it because it's in the Singapore market there. It's a pass. It's a sell from Michael, uh, although he sees a positive just as far as accessing the latest spectrum uh, available there in Singapore. A uh, second one being Aurelia Metals. Uh, it's in gold and also copper. Michael uh, saying just too high risk at this stage because it is largely an explorer to sell. Andrew also avoiding it, saying it's a pretty tough business. But I've got to say, both Andrew and Michael pretty much avoiding gold all up at the moment. All right, our third one uh, that was an ETF. Thought I might have more luck here. Uh, sort of. It's the Vanek Global Listed Private Equity ETF, um, holding 50 of the largest uh, private equity firms. Um, Andrew's saying, yeah, he's not really that interested, although if you're looking uh, to get into that space, an ETF's probably not a bad vehicle to do so. Michael's saying uh, that uh, you're probably better off going for a directly sort of unlisted uh, stake there. So, but it's a hold from Michael. Uh, to our fourth one, United Malts. Um, as I mentioned there, the world's fourth largest supplier of roasted malt. We see a lot of those ag prices just going skyrocketing at the moment. Uh, Michael pointing out there, it's a lot of COVID headwinds, uh, revenues under pressure, too many variables, so it's a sell. And Andrew just saying overall, the economic's just not attractive. So it's a double sell on that one. And just finally there, Cluey. Um, impressive growth, says Andrew, but losses winding its pass. And Michael saying... He's, in, he's impressed with the sector, but not Cluey. Uh, he sees more value there in ReadyTech and IDP education. All right, well, let, uh, that's, so, that's the first five. Let's uh, catch up with how our portfolio and the call is going. We've been tracking this since July the 1st last year, thanks to our partner, NabTrade. All the stocks to get a two thumbs up or a buy from both. Uh, our experts on the show go into the portfolio. If a stock that's already in the portfolio comes up again and receives a unanimous hold from both, it remains in the portfolio. So let's uh, check out how we're performing thus far. Weekly, down 0.87% uh, reflecting where the market's been essentially. One month return down 2% and year to date since July 1st this year, we're around 6.5% higher. Since inception July 1st last year, we're up more than 43%. Taking a look at the stocks we've added recently, Adairs, Magellan Financial, that went in yesterday. Uh, Genworth Mortgage Insurance, Adore Beauty and Hub24. Those removed recently. Ingham's, that, that went out yesterday. Atomos, Bapcor and Harvey Norman. And you can check in on those stocks and ETFs we have in the course portfolio by heading to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. We'll be updating that every day here on the call to see how it is tracking. having an SMSF is hard? Well, think again. Set up your own SMSF completely online with Stake Super and invest your super with freedom. There's no paperwork and Stake does all the admin. You just focus on the investing. All right, let's carry on. Stock number six, LaVisa. This one coming to us from Cameron. 
And um, Michael, this is about fashion jewelry. Uh, and it had a change at the top too. How do you look at this one? I've been wrong on this in the past. <laughs> I, I've said this is probably not, not the best opportunity, but it, it's ended up doing extremely well. So it's a fast fashion brand with over sort of 500 stores across 21 countries. Um, they've recently changed their CEO, who's had a lot of experience um, in places like China and India, which is important to LaVisa with their growth strategy long term. They're looking to get their store network up to about 1,500. I'm pretty sure the CEO was formerly um, CEO of Zara in the Asia Pacific region, as well as a couple of other key fashion brands. Um, and at the moment, LaVisa is doing wonderfully well. The question is, how long can they sustain that long term? The concern I always have with one product type fashion brands um, is how long do they stay trendy and cool and, and desirable before those tastes and, and fashions start to change uh, and that will continue to sort of limit uh, my desire to be in a company like this although I have been wrong and could continue to be wrong going forwards but I'm going to give it a, a sell um, that's just going by my, my probably inherent biases with that, but it's, well, that's just it's been a what tremendous today, performer. Right? So I'm going for a, a sell on the visa. It's been a, a strong performer. The balance sheet looks very good. I just do question uh, the longevity of some of these fashion brands. All right. Andrew, are you seeing any positives here? Um, that uh, that 12 year, that uh, sorry, that 12 month graph, uh, bottom left, top right, that was relatively impressive, but can you see sustained growth here? I can. Look, I think Michael's got very good reason to be cautious about retail. Retail is very hard, really tough. Um, changing consumer preferences, tight margins, very very uh, cyclical, economically sens sensitive kind of industries. But all of that being said, th there's a lot to like about LaVisa. These guys are very, very, very smart operators. So, you know, um, they're they get so talking about unit economics i mean they they get 75 percent gross margins on these items that they sell the return on invested capital they've had pretty much sustained over a fairly long period of time it's been about 24 percent. so if you can give a management team 100 bucks and they can give you back or they can make for the business 124 bucks that's a that is a wonderful compounding machine um, and they've had really good success again off a small base but in terms of their online channel it's not just about network expansion that's very important for them but the same store sales growth has been really really strong um, excellent stock turnover and cost control um, you know I, I actually I think that they're just they're very they're very very good uh, operators um, they actually develop a hundred get this they develop a hundred different new product lines per week so they they I, I very much get that's that, that that caution around, oh, can they stay relevant? But they are, this fast fashion thing is, you know, it's it's something else entirely. And they, they really have uh, done very well on that. On top of it all, you've got a business that is very, very um, uh, safe in terms of its balance sheet. It's $35 million in cash here and zero debt. Um, and they've been able to they've been able to underpin all of that growth without taking on excessive amounts of leverage or having to go and uh, raise money continually from the market. It's been internally funded. So this is there's a lot to like about this. So the current price is probably on a multiple of about 40 on a forward basis for a business that's growing like this. The key thing is whether they get the traction in, in China and India. I mean, every company likes to say how big the market is and if we only get 1% of the market, we're going to make a fortune. But 
but execution is another thing. But if anyone was going to do it successfully, I think that they'd have a, a pretty good uh, chance at it. So um, I don't hold it personally. Again, it's just an opportunity cost kind of thing for me. But um, if anything that's come up on the show so far, this is definitely the pick for me. So on that basis, and to give you something, Andrew, I'll, I'll go with a buy. Oh, well done, Andrew. It's a buy for LaVisa. And I, I can do that safely because Michael didn't, so it doesn't get added to the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, you got a fallback. Okay. All right, that's uh, LaVisa. All right, to our next one. We're back to ETFs now. The BetaShares uh, Crude Oil Index ETF, uh, currency, currency hedge. This one coming to us from Steve. He wants to know your thoughts. Is it a good buy long term for young investors, Andrew? No. Uh, capital N, capital O. Um, again, look, this is, I suspect this is something that's been, again, cooked up by an ETF provider because it sees a market for it. But even if, to give some benefit of the doubt, this is probably what you would call a trading instrument. If you had a short-term view on crude, you have something on the market that you can buy to sort of prosecute that, that viewpoint. But again, let's let's pan back. Let's have a look at let's have a look at what history tells us. You know, so it tracks the RW uh, West Texas Intermediate uh, price of oil at seventy bucks a barrel. Uh, seventy bucks a barrel in two thousand and six. It was seventy bucks a barrel in nineteen eighty. Um, even if you go back to the mid nineties when it was sort of at a much lower level, about thirty five dollars a barrel. You compound that out over all of that long period of time, and you've got an average annual gain of two point seven percent. And you've got a world that's transitioning away from oil. So as a speculator, i.e. a gambler, sure, fill your boots if you've, if you've got a short-term view on it. As a young, long-term investor, absolutely not. Just buy a broad-based index tracking low-cost index uh, ETF and you'll do far, far, far better. I almost guarantee that. All right. Yeah, so Michael, obviously, Andrew's point there being oil. We know where oil's going in terms of the future of the planet. So how do you see this one? I guess... When you, whether it look at short term or long term, it's it's got to be considered on a short term basis only. I think if you're going to look at something like this because of the the nature of commodity prices, um, they tend to be very volatile. They don't tend to have a, a linear trend over the long term. They tend to sort of oscillate around that marginal cost of production. Um, I suppose if you did take a view, you know, around the time of COVID, when, when energy and when oil prices were extremely low, that there was going to be a significant bounce back and you wanted to have broad exposure to the oil price, then this is the way to play it. Um, I do think that in the long term, you'll get more bang for your buck um, in an oil producing company if the oil producing company does well. So for, ex for instance, if the oil price goes up 100%, the oil company's profits will likely increase by a lot more than 100%, just given the, the leverage to that underlying oil price, which means you're more likely to get a superior return on an energy company in the event that oil does well. So if you're gonna punt or take a view on oil, I would try and find the best one or two oil producers, because um, I do think that your return will be superior than the underlying commodity. But look, I, I suppose there is a place for something like this in the market. It does give investors access to that market who normally wouldn't otherwise get access to the oil market. Um, so for that reason, I understand that the reasoning and the thought process as to why it exists, but from a long-term investment, it's gonna be very, very volatile up and down and, and take your pick as where you're gonna end up in 10 years, uh, quite possibly just back where you started. All right, Steve, there's your answer. It's a no, particularly if you're thinking long-term. All right, next one, Gentrack Group. Michael, software solutions for utilities and airports. Um, airports, that is obviously 
rings alarm bells, given where they've been over the past 18 months. How do you see this one? It's true. It's just really a software provider to these utility type assets and businesses. Um, the revenue growth has been around 5%. Um, looking at the EBITDA growth, it's also around that 5% mark. Statutory profit, 3.2 million. So it is still quite a, a small business, doesn't pay a dividend at the moment. And I think with businesses like this, if you're a company supporting large utility type companies or larger companies of any sort, you are really limited in your price increases by that broader industry. Um, obviously utilities, the price growth in your underlying bills is quite slow um, and has been really capped by political pressure and, and things like that as well. People are always conscious of electricity prices going up too much, for instance. So to some extent, I think that does limit the revenue growth of a company like Gentrek because you are in some sense capped to the industry that you're serving. Um, so for a business where the revenue growth is somewhat limited uh, and expense growth um, could at any point increase, you've got to be careful of those margins. So from my standpoint, although it looks like a software tech type company, it doesn't really have the economics of one. So I think there are better alternatives out there and I'm going to go unfortunately for a sell. Okay. Andrew, do you agree? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, Gentrack had a wonderful history there for a while. <clears throat> really strong revenue growth, really attractive margins. But the last three years have just been brutal for them. So this is really a turnaround play uh, at this point in time. Sales have actually flatlined, but it's the margins that have been really, really squeezed here. They were operating on a 30% operating margin. That's a sign of a good business. But now it's about closer to 12%. So Michael touched on some of the... Um, regulatory kind of issues that a business like this can face. So over in the UK, they've had a, a horrible time with the government putting on enforced price caps. There's been a number of major players go to the wall. Just recently, one another one went into administration. Uh, so it's, 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 it's one that's it's suffering from all kinds of sort of structural issues that are outside of its, its own making. Um, where, where this is interesting, and this would take a little bit more work to dig into, is you sort of look at all of that and you kind of think, well, it, it, that might all be true, but it's only on 1.7 times sales and uh, maybe a, a PE of 30, 35, at least on a forward basis, um, uh, which doesn't seem necessarily too bad, but this is a company that, cap that doesn't capitalize any of its R&D spend. So if you just take the strategic growth investments that these guys make, about $12, $13 million last year, and you cap, this is all financial engineering, I know what I'm saying here, but I, I do point it out because a lot of companies do do it this way. They could capitalize a lot of that spending and all of a sudden that takes it off the income statement, the profit goes up a lot more, and you have a company that's on a price earnings multiple of around 15 or so, so it starts to look a lot more attractive. I actually far prefer for software companies to cap to not capitalize because this is really an ongoing cost. Like it's perfectly legal and normal, but but you know you, you can have your preference to it. So I did just add that sort of wrinkle in there. It's at least on a on a operating cash flow basis, you might be able to make a stronger case for it. But until the sort of the industry situation clarifies a little bit more, it's it's also a pass for me. Okay. All right. Now, let's uh, finish the last couple of ones uh, to uh, some large caps. And we're going to uh, focus on QBE Insurance. Uh, it's got a relatively new chief executive at the helm in Andrew Horton. Uh, and its share price this past 12 months up close to 40%. Andrew. Yeah, it's funny that you know, people tend to sort of say the reason why you go for the big end of town is because it's fast, safer. 
Um, and I again just don't know if that's borne out by by the facts uh, here at all. I mean, QBE on paper should have a lot of great sort of competitive advantages and that, but it's been a woeful performer. It's been an awful performer. Woeful's being too kind. I mean, this is the share price is again back to where it was in 2004. It hit these insane levels pre GFC. It was up 35 bucks a share. And if you could zoom that chart out any further, you would just see it really only heading one direction since then. Um, uh, one, a couple of, couple of again, sort of structural issues that have been um, blowing, blowing against them. Uh, you've had a falling interest rate. So these companies have huge amounts of float. Warren Buffett talks a lot about this for his business, of course. So you take in all this money and in terms of insurance premiums, you get to invest that and keep any of the proceeds. Uh, along the way. So uh, QBE, of course, does that as well. Um, and they've got, I wrote it down somewhere, or I just can't find, here we go, $28 billion, which is mainly in bonds and fixed interests. So you could argue that as bond, uh, as interest rates rise, that's going to be a bit of a positive to them. We've also started to see some uh, higher premium rates come through, which is nice. They've managed to increase the level of gross written premiums which is also nice. Um, but the track record just really isn't there for me. And and you've got a business that really the dividend's about the same as what they were paying out a decade ago. Is it, there's just no growth that's been in there. And yes, there are some factors around that, but, but it's pretty ho-hum. Um, it's a pass for me. Okay, Michael. Tough businesses, insurance companies, um, QBE's been a perennial disappointment really. Every time the analyst community starts to get optimistic, they come out with a, an impairment or, or something out of left field. Mm. Um, we spoke earlier um, about companies with a lot of variables and, and things like that. And insurance companies suffer from the same thing. Um, obviously, weather is very hard to predict. Uh, and often they come out of left field and they cause big write downs and impairments, etc. Uh, you've also got a situation where interest rates have been very low for such a long period of time. It makes it very difficult for insurance companies to pull your premiums together and make an investment return on those without going up the risk curve. Um, premiums have started to recover across the industry and that should alleviate some of the pressure. The issues with property insurance and casualty insurance really weighed on the company for the last 10 years and that started to dissipate some of those issues. So the return on equity is slowly starting to pick up again. And that does have the market a little bit more optimistic about the outlook for the company, but just a, a very complex business. It's been a very tough period for these companies. Um, rising interest rates, rising bond yields will assist them to some degree, but they're not getting back anytime soon, at least, or at least I don't think so, to the heady days of six, 7% you'd get on your some of your bond yields. So you've got to be careful, I think, with these companies and pray that it doesn't, um, that there's no weather storms or, or disasters out there to sort of set the, the company back. So I'll be leaving this one and, and passing on these insurance companies. Okay, that's a pass from a both. Sell, yes. A sell, in fact, yes. Okay, let's call it how it is. Okay, all right, to our final one. And this is one of the biggies. It is Commonwealth Bank um, and recently sold as majority stake in Colonial First State. Uh, although, uh, as we know, its net interest margins are shrinking along with some of the other biggies. Uh, and also, we've got to factor in what's going on with uh, home buying intentions. That was a record decline, almost a record decline in November of 27.5%. Uh, so that's obviously going to be a bit of a hit as well. Michael? CBA, um, what can we say? It's a, probably the most owned stock across the market. 
Um, at this point in time, um, we are not buyers of banks. In fact, we, we are sellers. We opportunistically bought the banks around June of last year. We did quite well out of them and we sold around the middle of, of this year. Um, the issue that the banks are facing is that revenue growth is significantly under pressure. Net interest margins are under pressure. Return on equity is in decline. Earnings are in decline. Expenses are increasing. Um, so it's not a very easy environment for these banks to operate in, uh, particularly when you take into account that the Commonwealth Bank and, and many of the Australian banks are in the very top, you know, probably five, ten valued banks in the world, if not the very top. I mean, the Commonwealth Bank was trading on a P ratio of 16, 17, 18 times earnings for a company with very limited earnings growth and a very limited long-term pathway to growth. Um, the fact is households in Australia are so indebted at the moment that although even if interest rates do increase and those net interest margins do um, improve to some extent, the fact is people are struggling to take on more and more debt given where their indebtedness levels are at the moment. Um, credit growth has started to slow again. So from my standpoint, um, I'm just not too excited about the banks at the moment. Look, I think they'll do okay in that they'll probably trend sideways, you'll collect a decent dividend, but the dividends per share have been in decline as well for the last five years mm. or so. So I just think there's better growth areas to the market. Obviously, if you've held them for a long time, you've got capital gains implications, there are other mm. factors that come into your decision, but don't expect the same returns from your banks that you've received over the last 20, 30 years because the conditions going forward are gonna be very, very different. Interest rates came down from 10, 15% to, to you know 1% or whatever it is. Um, or even far, far lower than that. Um, you saw a big explosion in credit growth, housing prices went through the roof. All these conditions are great for banks, but looking forward five, 10 years, it's very unlikely those same conditions will be replicated going forward, making revenue growth, earnings growth, dividend per share growth, far, far different to what people become used to. So I'm gonna say it's a hold. It's a hold, even a hold. though you're saying generally you're a well, seller. Yeah, it's a hold because I don't necessarily think that they're going to fall away much more from here. Yeah. Uh, they probably have come back off their recent peaks. They'll probably find a little bit of a base. There'll always be some buying into them to support them. The dividend yield will be supportive of them to some extent as well. So I don't think they're going to fall off a cliff, yeah. but you have to be conscious that you're probably going to miss out on other alternatives elsewhere if you stay with the overweight positions that many Australians do. Yeah, Andrew, just to get your opinion then, obviously, um, have we reached, is it past the peak as far as the big banks are concerned? Yeah, I think so. Michael's just made so many excellent points that, that, that I was going to make, so I won't, I won't reiterate them. I mean, I'd say I'd add a few more. So I would say that in many ways, that, that when you look over the last five or 10 years, it's been actually a wonderful environment for banks. Like these guys, CBA holds one in four of, the, uh, of mortgages out there 70 percent of the lending that they do is for mortgages and we all know what property has done right and and despite that dividends have gone nowhere earnings have gone nowhere it's like if that's if that's how you're performing in that kind of environment you know what if and i don't want to ever dare suggest that you know sometimes things go down in property but what if things turn uh the worm turns in that particular space how are they going to do there so so michael was absolutely right i wish i'd done the same actually is like the time to buy the banks is when there's blood on the streets and we're going through a real dislocation because because the commonwealth bank will be around for decades i've got no doubt about that but there's just no value there and in fact anyone who's bought over the last five or six years has only really gotten that that five or six percent year which again is not terrible and i want to say suggest for a second it's terrible but it's mm. it's it's underperformed the market it's not super attractive and it would need to fall 
at least 20% before I'd start to get interested. Oh, okay. All right. But is it, are you selling it then? Sell. Yep. Okay. Like to be definitive. Very good. All yeah. right. Let's summarize our five last stocks there. We began with LaVisa. Michael there, questioning whether it can sustain its growth. Uh, looking at its balance sheet, it is a sell from him. But Andrew's saying, acknowledging that retail is a very hard sector, but he says a lot to like for this company. And as a result, it is a buy from him. The beta shares crude oil index ETF. Uh, it's a big no from both. Uh, certainly when the question was, is it a good buy for the long term? No. Short term, maybe, but certainly not the long term. Gentrack. Um, Michael's saying uh, revenue growth there limited. It is a sell from him. This is software solutions for utilities and airports. Uh, Andrew's saying the last three years have just been absolutely brutal with margin squeeze. So it's a big pass from him. Uh, QBE Insurance, um, both saying what a woeful performer it's been recently. Uh, pass from Andrew, a big sell from Michael. And finally there we had CBA. Um, Michael prefacing this by saying he's generally a seller of the uh, the big banks, but it is a hold from him. Whereas from Andrew, it is a sell saying the best years have been past them. That's not to say it's not going to be around for decades to come. All right, so that is our show for today. Michael, thanks for joining us from Medellin. Thanks for having me. Look forward to coming back in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And Andrew, thanks for joining us, the straw man himself. My pleasure. Sorry for being so negative. <laughs> no, you, we, got, we got a buy out of you. That's all right. <laughs> we got one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, so if there are any stocks you'd like us to cover, flick us an email at the call at ausbiz.com.au. You can tweet us at Ausbiz. TV and a reminder where to find the stocks we have in the course portfolio. You can head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Mm-hmm.